the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, back by popular demand, this year's Revived series, Oh, That First Means That, is now on Part 39. The original sessions were aired in 2022, from January to September, and consisted of 31 programs. Well, we're continuing to be what I call Detectives of the Divine. To access the original 31 archived sessions, or catch up on these recent sessions restarted, started in May, go to faithtalk1360.com and search under local program podcasts. Once again, friends, we're putting on our detective's cap, pulling out our spiritual magnifying glass, and strapping on our first century sandals, because our goal should always be to protect ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively barking out what we think a Bible verse means, and imposing a modern perspective on it. Friends, I wonder sometimes why many of us continue to misuse scripture. Some Bible scholars were actually asked this question, and they replied, declining biblical literacy, questionable Bible translations, and preachers who don't do their homework. And while Christians generally want to know what Bible passages mean, they often miss their meanings because they're more focused on what they expect or want to find. How many times, friends, do we crave our spiritual quick fix, our biblical morsel for the day, so we can get on with life? Rather than take a little extra time to investigate the context of these verses we so easily abuse, shouldn't we desire to do the scriptures justice at all cost? And shouldn't we desire to respect the Holy Spirit? After all, he's the author and inspirer of our scriptures. And friends, frankly, shouldn't it bother us that up till now we've earmarked 38 Bible verses that are commonly misunderstood, mischaracterized, misinterpreted, and as a result, misapplied? Shouldn't we be dedicating ourselves to faithful and careful scrutiny of Bible passages we've believed meant one thing, 
but are discovering they mean something different? And friends, let me repeat that I take no pleasure in shining a spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically re-examining texts that are unsoundly presented by some of us preachers, teachers, and pastors. And you know why? Because the Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out, actually screaming out to tell us its story. But what are we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians often do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story, and to this I say, shame on us. Well, in today's session, our scripture under scrutiny is Matthew 5:48, Jesus' summary statement on a part of his Sermon on the Mount where he said, Therefore be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, as the New King James reads. And friends, this is a good follow-up to our last session on Matthew 5:41, since the immediate context of both is the same, verses 38 through 48, of which verse 48, our scripture under scrutiny today, serves as a summary statement. I've named today's session, Christian, we have a problem. All well-known and respected English translations have the English word perfect, which may be why we have responses like, Matthew 5.48 says we are to be perfect, and it says we are to be as perfect as God is. Wow, if Jesus meant that, then we have a real problem. We can't be perfect. Or, this conclusion may be Jesus' most difficult command. Even, what an astonishing command. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? On the surface, it seems like an impossible, even thoughtless request. How about, Jesus will drop a bombshell of a statement to describe how we must follow God? A book was even published in 2005 called Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Well, friends, regarding Matthew 5.48, I must confess that no good English translation does justice to perfect, because our English word perfect is fraught with challenges and misconceptions, and it's these misconceptions that lead to poor and unsound interpretations, which then become unsound and inadequate applications, the sad outcome being our understanding of Matthew 5.48 has been weighed and found wanting. And one reason why we must call on our detective sense and together with our spiritual magnifying glass be prodded to hunt down the significant contextual and religious background of this portion of Jesus' sermon, the immediate context being verses 43 through 48. But before I read these verses, I'll also confess that an English translation I'm not fond of and wouldn't recommend in this case makes a more valiant effort to contextually interpret Jesus' words, translating verse 48 as, Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. But here, though the English word complete is part of the original Greek word meaning, it's still insufficient in conveying the heart of the word, and we'll unpack this shortly. So the immediate context of our scripture under scrutiny is verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, in our last session, homing in on verse 41, and walking that extra mile to carry a soldier's gear, we illuminated the social and military environment. The implied military language in tandem with the military backdrop forced us to recognize that Jesus in particular and his Jewish people in general were an ethnic minority in a land under military occupation. Here the Jews did not have the privilege of a free society. The Roman law of conscription or impressment gave soldiers the right to force, commandeer, even seize people at will to carry their military packs for one mile. This requirement alone was oppressive, invasive, demeaning, and humiliating. It robbed Jews of their dignity, and it sowed seeds of revenge, enticing the Jews to long for the violent overthrow of Rome. It also sowed seeds of hatred toward their pagan overlords. No wonder the Jews' perception of their coming Messiah was tilted in favor of believing Jesus' mission included amassing his own army to revolt against Rome, overthrow these pagan occupiers, and cast them out of Israel. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount actually shocked, even stunned his Jewish hearers because his response to Roman occupation was so starkly different from other Jewish activists of his time, especially the zealots who were both incensed and frustrated by their Roman oppressors, who to them were just invaders and bullies. You see, they couldn't amass sufficient members to launch an offensive against Rome. Their rabid nationalism and their centuries of religious breeding to expect a conquering king messiah just fanned into flame their passion that Jesus would lead the Jewish people into battle to once and for all expel the empire from the Holy Land by military force. And in so doing, this Messiah would literally restore the kingdom of God, the promised land, to God's chosen people. Here they could restore their allegiance to their God's lordship instead of having to recognize Caesar as Lord. Isn't it any wonder, friends, that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, found himself dealing with the zealots and their mindset? especially since one of his disciples was a zealot. <laughs> the lessons from both our last session and today's session actually overlap. We must see Jesus' commands here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount as intending to provide an outlet for Israel's God, Yahweh, to display his goodness, his kindness, his grace, if you will, through his people. In spite of living under the weight of the evil behavior of their oppressors, those ruling over them, easily viewed as their enemies. So, friends, these six verses, verses 43 through 48, pack a punch we rarely identify because we're so accustomed to yanking out a single phrase or sentence and attach to it or deduce from it a meaning that should never have been gotten out of it. 
In addition to that, we lose both the beauty and the necessity of being detectives of the divine, detectives of the true spiritual meaning behind a passage through its context. We don't make a habit of wearing our detective's cap. We don't pull out our spiritual magnifying glass, and we rarely, if ever, strap on and lace up our first century sandals, because if we did, we'd immediately see that Jesus was bringing a countercultural message, a kingdom of God truth that was a reversal of the typical behavioral norms they had gotten used to living. Friends, we can't ever toss aside or not give credence to the social and military pressure that was thrust upon the Jews in the first century. The norm for them was to hate their enemies. The norm for them was being subjugated by their oppressors. The norm for them was being robbed of their dignity. The norm for them was constantly being reminded they were a conquered people. The norm for them was fearing harsh punishment if they rebelled or resisted or attempted an insurrection. Friends, if we had our first century sandals on, we'd totally understand and relate to the frustration of the zealots and the splinter group within them, the Sicarii. They were called Sicarii because they concealed in their cloaks a small dagger, a sicae, and ran around indiscriminately stabbing Romans and even non-sympathetic Jews as a way of conveying their frustration, hatred, and opposition to their Roman occupation. If we had our first century sandals on, we'd read between the lines of Jesus' commands in these six verses of his Sermon on the Mount and realize he was offering oppressed people a way of refusing to allow evil and evil people control them. In effect, Jesus was screaming out in no uncertain terms that any abuses, any insults could not overcome the power and influence of Messiah Jesus in their lives and that they were being given a new spiritual military mission, one that entailed being filled, ruled, and regulated by the Spirit of God. In other words, being armed with godly power instead of the worldly power of swords and soldiers. And their new marching orders were to advance as Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and throughout the entire Roman Empire. So, friends, in these six inextricably linked verses, 43 through 48, we discern that Jesus is supplying a key teaching moment on the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of the character of God. This kingdom of God, which Messiah Jesus inaugurated, is not what the Jews expected or wanted. They clamored for retribution, yet the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of retribution. They clamored for equity due them via earthly laws, political laws, even corrupted and co-opted religious laws. But Jesus' kingdom operates differently. Jesus' kingdom is an instead kingdom. It operates as a spiritual kingdom whose parameters are compassion and unconditional love. Ouch! You see, friends, Jesus was bringing a whole different kingdom operating system, a counter-cultural operating system. Instead of hate ruling, love now rules. In other words, instead of hating one's enemies, they were to love their enemies and do good to those who despitefully used them. Friends, Jesus is introducing first century Jews and us to a kingdom that's a topsy-turvy kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a value-swapping kingdom. 
Up is now down. Down is now up. Humility is now a virtue instead of being the despised character trait it was in the Roman world. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Well, friends, we owe it to ourselves to scrutinize these six verses, Matthew five forty-three through 48, a little more thoroughly. And it certainly would be to our benefit to reread chapter 5 in its entirety. I recommend you do this to reinforce the backdrop of this six-verse portion, our portion under scrutiny, and highlighting verse 48, our scripture under scrutiny. Immediately we notice in 5.3 that Jesus' fundamental topic under discussion is the kingdom of heaven, and his entire introduction, known to us as the Beatitudes, reveals that behaviors by residents in this kingdom run counter to the world. In other words, these traits for which Jesus labels us blessed indicate a complete shift in attitudes and behaviors such that they'd clearly be seen as countercultural to the common people of the day and we're immediately given clues that the peacemakers and the persecuted will make up this kingdom of heaven, per verses 10 through 12, even elaborating on their persecution as including insults and false and evil accusations. In verses 13 through 20, Jesus describes the power of influence for the residents of this kingdom, reminding them that their kingdom is in conflict with the world, represented by their Roman oppressors and overlords lords, and that Caesar is not their lord and God, but rather their father in heaven is their lord and God. So their present marching orders are to be salt in this unsavory world and light in this dark world. Their light should shine in such a way that good works abound, that their oppressors will see, resulting in Israel's God, Yahweh, getting the glory." And friends, let me say here that verse 20 seems like a somewhat thorny statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's not a thorny statement at all. In fact, it's not hard at all for our righteousness to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, because their self-righteousness was duty-bound legalistic righteousness, and it was lived outwardly for the express purpose of impressing others. Luke brings this to our attention in Luke 18, his account of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Read this yourself. Additionally, Jesus delivers his scathing rebukes to the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the forms of woes in Matthew 23, Mark 12, and that's repeated in Luke 20. These woes all relate to the Jewish religious leaders' misplaced focus on outward appearances to look righteous. Then Matthew 5 verses 21 through 37 present a series of moral admonitions and behaviors that encompass personal relationships to indicate how residents in Jesus' kingdom are to act. Then Matthew 5 verses 38 through 42 represent our section under scrutiny last time, where verse 41 became our scripture under 
greater scrutiny. If you missed this previous session and would like to listen, go to faithtalk1360.com and search the menu for local program podcasts. Podcasts are posted in date order. And finally, we come to today's portion under scrutiny, verses 43 through 48, and verse 48 being our key scripture under scrutiny. The very first thing I want us to notice is that verse 43 introduces us to love. So love becomes the overarching subject in all six verses. Here Jesus refers back to Leviticus 19.18, but the phrase, and hate your enemy, is not there. My take on this, based on the military backdrop, is that Jesus was making a subtle reference to the Roman oppressors, for whom the Jews viewed as their enemies. Interestingly, the use of neighbor in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, has a higher status which degenerated by Jesus' time. We see the designations foreigners, strangers, sojourners, and aliens used often in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 19:33 and 34, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 24:22, You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. The key here, friends, is that Israel's God, Yahweh, wanted his chosen people to love and care for the non-Israelites among them. But in the first century, the Jews narrowed the term neighbor to those they liked or who were like them. Believe it or not, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, were given an evangelistic mandate, sprinkled liberally throughout our Old Testament. Yahweh, Israel's personal and covenant God, commissioned them to make his name known throughout the earth. So, friends, the first love Jesus commands is the love for the Jews' enemies. Whoa! And the second command of Jesus is to pray for those you hate, your persecutors, your oppressors, those pagan Roman overlords. Friends, have you noticed that you can't pray for an enemy very long and still continue hating them? Interestingly, verse 44 continues into verse 45 and adds a condition. Jesus wants us to love our enemies and pray for our oppressors because this makes us children of our Father God in heaven. Then Jesus elaborates on the unbiased love of our Father God in heaven, whom we are to imitate, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What? Here Jesus elaborates on the kind of love God the Father demonstrates. Indiscriminate love, impartial love, non-favoritism love, unprejudiced love, unbiased love. Whoa, really? Then in verses 46 and 47, Jesus gives them a zinger. What reward should they get for only loving those who love them? Corrupt tax collectors do that. Jews hated the tax collectors, so Jesus was telling them they love the same way tax collectors love. His second zinger is verse 47, where he tells them they're only loving like the pagans love. Then he socks them in the gut with verse 48, which says, Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So, friends, my question is, why all of a sudden do we orphan verse 48 and disconnect it from the sole theme of love expressed in all five verses prior to verse 48? And then we decide for ourselves what this verse means? Shame on us! This is ludicrous! It belies contextual interpretation. Our second error is imposing a definition on the word perfect that's not there. Unfortunately, perfect is a lousy English word to use here. It brings challenges and misconceptions that sadly draw us to make wrong conclusions. Part of the problem is that there's no good single word to put here because it requires a phrase or whole sentence to properly supply its meaning. A unique and rich term. It conveys the idea of pursuing a goal to completion, pressing on to accomplish that goal. And why Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Or as the NIV begins, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. I'll suggest that a reasonable translation be, therefore, press on to the goal of not loving impartially, like our Heavenly Father loves. This is in keeping with the context, and I think furnishes an appropriate summary. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program. I hope it's been a blessing and challenging you. And as promised, we'll close with an email where you may inquire about how to financially support a word from the word, which is listener funded. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding the June 29th session on Romans 8.28 with this. I liked what you shared about how God, how, how the Israelites groaned in their slavery in Egypt and they cried out to God. God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I absolutely love how God heard his people's cries and wanted to remove them from their suffering. You perfectly illustrated God's mighty hand and love to his people. Where we forget, he never does. Wonderful, wonderful message. Well, thank you for your encouraging and complimentary feedback. And friends, I love coming alongside those of you without a church home or those who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net, we're broadcasting in over 70 countries. Friends, please invest in the mission of a word from the word and help us become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.